1 Peter chapter 1. Now, I'm excited about this message because this truly is the key to the entire book. If we're going to get the book, we've got to get this, which means uh, I, I, I want to be able to communicate this as, as um, convincingly but as clear as possible. And, um, and so we're, we're, we're going to look at uh, the essence of what I believe Peter is telling us and I hope it'll be an encouragement. I think it will. That's the point of what Peter's getting at. We're going to read verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, and we're going to hone in on verse 13. So let's stand together, please, and let us read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through verse 16. Now remember in Opset yesterday, our, our Saturday outreach, we had 102 there yesterday going out and uh, inviting people to church and and confronting them with the gospel, and it was good to see uh, that many out. But one of the things we mentioned was looking for what are the, the, the main commands that he's given to us, the, the, the challenges, the imperatives. And I hope you went and read and, and are reading along so that this doesn't seem foreign to you when we're looking at it on Sunday morning. But keep that in mind as we look at it here, these few verses. Verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. I'll give you... The title of the message here a little bit later, I don't know if Brother Cherry can hold off on, on giving that or if it's going to show up there. But I just I want, to, I want us to, to walk our way up through this. But this is the key. This is going to be the, the part that really, if we get a hold of this, the rest of the book will make sense. If we don't get this, the rest of the book is going to be... Uh, just somewhat may come across a little pedantic to us, and I don't want that to be the case. I want us to get the big idea that God had in mind when he gave that, because that's the big idea he still has in mind. Let's look at it together this morning. Thank you. Please be seated. Remember Peter's writing to people who have been persecuted, scattered. Uh, they were people that were giving the gospel. They had been saved. They're giving the gospel. And people in those days are like people today. Many of them, they don't care that you believe in Jesus. They just don't want to be confronted with the notion that they have to repent and put their faith in Jesus. And persecution sets in on these believers. And, and so they've been forced to flee, perhaps carrying only what they had in their hands. And they've left home, they've left their occupations, they've left everything, and they're naturally disappointed, and they're experiencing dread and fear. They needed to be encouraged and strengthened to continue following the one who saved their soul. But how was Peter going to do that? What could be said to encourage people who had lost everything and had to flee? Well, only one message really could encourage and strengthen them, it's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They needed to keep their eyes upon the grace of God and the salvation that God's provided. And that's what Peter's been preaching. That's what we've read and what we've gone over these last few Sundays in the first 12 verses. But not just keeping their eyes on their great salvation. Now they needed to do something with it. When facing trials and temptations, when you're going through life with heavy burdens, it's not enough just to keep your focus on the gift of salvation. There must be a cooperating with that salvation. There must be a connecting to that package of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. See, when you undergo trials, whether persecution or suffering or temptation... You have to access what that salvation provides. 
It's not enough just to look at it and be thankful for it. There needs to be a drawing from the account. We must dedicate ourselves to God to get our minds ready. We must concentrate on some things. And so therefore, Peter is now shifting from those first 12 verses of look how great of an inheritance God has given you to here's what you need to do with this. If you're going to not just survive, but that you will succeed as a victor. So he points out, and I think this will be on the screen, some things to focus on. Zero in on three things in particular. And this is not the message. I just want you to, to try to grasp this. In verse 13, he's talking about focus on the coming grace and salvation of God. Verse 14, he tells us focus on obedience. Verse 15 and 16, focus upon holiness. And we've heard that challenge here this morning. Now, Peter gives five imperatives for those who face suffering. And before we get into that, before I give those to you here, um, what would you see to be the, the major commands? Maybe if we just kept it in the context that we read, what would you say would be the primary command? What would be the, the major emphasis that we've read in verse 13, 14, and 15, and 16? All right. Be holy, sober, obedience. These are all there. But let me give you this, and this is just pulling it up kind of as a bird's eye. For suffering, whether you're going through persecution, whether you're going through trial of physical burdens, whether you're going through financial reversals, whatever the burden might be, Peter's emphasizing five imperatives. Verse number 13, it is fixing your hope completely on the return of Christ. Number two, be holy in all your behavior. Number three, conduct yourself in the fear of God during your stay upon this earth. That's verse 17. Then he tells us to, number four, fervently love one another. And then he tells us to long for the sincere, pure milk of God's word in chapter number two. And so these are all at the end of chapter one and, and the emphasis on the word is the end of chapter one carries over into chapter two, verse two. So five major imperatives and the rest of the book is going to be connected to those. So you're going through trials and suffering. What, what, what should I do? He gives five things. And... Um, but let us focus on these three in verse 13. He tells us in verse 13, three basic commands. Gird up the loins of your mind, keep sober, and fix your hope. Three things. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and settle your hope in Jesus. Look at verse 13. Let's read it together, shall we? Ready? Verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in light of this great salvation that he spent the first 12 verses talking about, He's telling these Christians, especially those who are going through suffering and persecution, pain and hurt, that they should unreservedly live for the future, the big picture, and then that they ought to anticipate this completion of their salvation at the second coming of Jesus. Now, look at this. Look at these commands here. Look at what, what he's given to us in this, in this sense. Look at uh, these three um, commands. But before we hit these three commands, I want you to understand a concept that, uh, that 
you see in Paul's writing, you see it here in Peter's writing, and that is the indicatives versus the imperatives. Now, if you're going to go into taking Greek, you'd, you'd get into this, and I don't want to talk too much about that because, uh, one, I don't, I don't want you to, to think I have to have it in order to understand my Bible. Um, you don't. Uh, you, God's given us a wonderful book, and He's given us a Holy Spirit to understand it. I just feel like when it comes to someone handling the Bible, a preacher, like a lawyer, like a doctor, is going to study some things and get a grasp on some things that, that most of us wouldn't need so that we can be ready to, to uh, uh, explain, ready to digest, and ready to be able to teach and preach. And, and so one of the things in Greek is you hear about indicatives and you hear about the imperatives. And all that simply means is that God, He's always giving us the indicatives that means what is, what he's done for us, what you have, who you are. He always gives us the indicatives before he gives us imperatives. Before he gives us what we're to do for him, he's always giving to us what he's done for us. Before he tells you how you ought to live, he always gives us what you have in Jesus. Paul does it all the time. And Peter does it here because God does it. Last week I mentioned Brother Donnie Bryant gave a challenge in men's prayer and he talked about what all of us could give basically as a testimony and that is so often we think of the Christian life as what I have to do. I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this and it wears a person down. And so what God says is I want you to see how I get it across to you, what I'm really saying. And God is not telling us do this and do this and do this. God is ultimately saying Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's what you have. Here's who you are. And as a result of all that, then he says, here's what you're to do after finding out who I am in Christ, who God is to me, what I have in him. And my imperatives, they are the natural overflow of enjoying the indicatives of who God is and what he's given. So, Verse 13, let's take those three commands in the order that they appear. Notice if you would, please. He says, gird up. You see the wherefore, which means he's connecting it to those first 12 verses. That great salvation he's given to us. Well, what's it all there for? Well, here's what it's there for. Gird up the loins of your mind. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your, your mind. In other words, he's saying, having girded up the loins of your mind. He's given the image of a person wearing flowing garments. And if you go to the Middle East, or you see those from the Middle East still today, you'll find them wearing long, flowing garments. And what Peter is saying is that before you take off running, you've got to take those garments, you've got to pull them up and tuck them inside your belt. He's saying, in order to run freely and quickly without tripping over your clothes, you've got to gird up. But here he's talking about not your legs, but your mind. The part of you that is to be freed up is your mind. You have to gird up the loins, the legs of your mind. In other words, he's saying so that your relationship with God and what you're to do with this wonderful salvation, verse 1 through 12, you're going to have to do something of girding up your mind. Then he says, number two, be sober. So number one, gird up the loins of your mind. Number two, be sober. It's an image of not being drunk regarding spiritual things. It implies being alert, evaluating things correctly because when you see clearly and your mind uh, is not numb with intoxicating influences, 
He's talking about this matter of our mind. He's not talking about intoxication in your stomach or in your body. He's not talking about girding up the loins of your actual legs. He's talking about your brain. He's talking about your spiritual uh, hub and control center. So he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Number two, be sober. Number three, set your focus on hope. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I think it's important that we see the emphasis. When it says hope, hope to the end for the grace. Hope to the end for the grace. Do you see that? Some of you, you're, you're like you've been drinking on some pickle juice. And um, this phrase, hope to the end for the grace, is the main verb. This is the first imperative of this passage of Scripture so far. It's a command. He says, rest your hope fully or fix your hope completely. This is the main verb. This is the first imperative, not be holy. This one is hope. Hope. If we don't get a hold of the concept of Bible hope, we're not going to be successful at Bible holiness. It won't happen. If we don't get a hold of this main verb, this is the first command and the primary command to us, none of the other things are going to make sense to us, not in an experiential way. So I want you to see this morning what I'm preaching on is what I believe Peter's emphasizing, and that is girding your mind so that you can guard your hope. Guarding your mind, I gave the different to Brother Cherry, guarding your mind to guide your hope. Guarding your mind so that you can guide your hope. I want to tell you, everybody has hope in something. Everyone's hoping in something. Peter's not talking about your idea of hope. He's talking about God's idea of hope. But in order to guide your hope, to hope for the grace, to hope in God, you've got to do what he says. And that is, you've got to guard your mind. You're going to have to, on purpose, guard your mind. Part of this matter of guarding your mind is disciplining yourself enough to stay awake in the message. Amen. It falls under these first two commands. So I, let's see this morning, number one, and the way I've got it numbered is in my own notes, I want you to see Peter's primary command, the important command, the pri they're all important, but the primary command is hope in God's grace. Fix and fill yourself with the hope of God. See, this matter of hoping in God's grace is a resolve to calibrate your focus on the big picture of God's grace and then work it out as a way of life. He says, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's making a reference to the coming of Jesus. He says you need to have hope, a, a, a resting confidence and expectation in Jesus Christ until he comes. And so often we look at the coming of Jesus as, well, that's out there. I was telling Captain, um, in fact, I met with Mrs. Cherry, our English teacher, and I said, I want you to help walk me through some of this because this is important from the grammatical aspect. And I know what it says in English and I see what it says in the Greek and I want to reconcile this so we get the right idea. And I was telling Captain later is that we can talk about the coming of Jesus and everyone say amen, but sometimes what does that do for us now? And so Peter, I believe, is telling us, see the big picture. See, when you decide in your mind already, well, I'm not going to the altar at the invitation, you've missed the big picture. When you decide, well, I'm not coming back on Sunday night, I think Sunday morning is enough. 
But you don't think that way when your stomach disagrees with eating. You're missing the big picture. When you say, I can be a Christian and not be a part of the church. Well, you're missing the big picture. Let me try that one again. You're missing the big picture. Jesus died for the church, not some nebulous universal. He died for, do you know every time you find ecclesia used is referring to local assemblies, local assemblies, local assemblies just like this. Someone said, well, they didn't have membership. Well, how did they know who to kick out? They did in 1 Corinthians 5. They did kick people out. You can't kick out who's not in. They did have a membership list. Well, I just don't think we ought to meet as much as we do. Would you like to meet as much as they did in the New Testament? They met daily. See, what I'm saying is it's easy when when you lose sight of the big picture to redefine and, and redesign your kind of Christianity. And Paul and Peter and James, they're all giving to us much of the same concept. And that is we need to be hope filled with an expectation of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about the coming of Jesus, when it'll all be filled up and completed, I believe he's reminding us while that might be out there and it may not be out there as far as we think it is, he's still saying, keep the big picture in mind. I mean, could you imagine when you should be in church, but you're not when Jesus comes back? Could you imagine when you should be faithful, but you're cheating on your wife when Jesus comes back? He's saying, just keep the big picture in mind. Hope. See, hope is not an action of the body. It's an experience of the soul. G. Campbell Morgan, he's an old British preacher in the 1800s. He told about a story of a man whose shop had been burned in that great Chicago fire. The man arrived at the ruins of his shop the next morning and he carried a table. His entire shop was burnt down. But he set a table up in the midst of that charred debris and he placed a sign on it that said, quote, Everything lost except wife, children, and hope. Business will be resumed as usual tomorrow morning. Well, there's hope. A bumper sticker once read, I've given up hope and I feel much better. It was meant to be humorous, but it's tragically humorous. Because it's an acknowledgement that a hope that points to nothing is worthless. This world has hope that's wishful thinking. And it's worthless without something that is true, without a foundation. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, hope is where you're going. It's not where you are. It's not what age you are. It's not where you've been. Take heart, Peter says, hope. Hope in the one who will endure from everlasting to everlasting. Someone said you can go 40 days without food, three days without water. You can go eight minutes without air, but you can't go a single second without hope and be effective. It's an essential part of life. When hope is gone, life in essence is over. Now understand, there's a difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is the belief that things will get better. Hope is the confidence that with God, nothing is impossible. There's a big difference. Optimism is passive. Hope is active. I have confidence in God. When David went to battle against Goliath as a teenage boy, he pointed out all the obstacles. Here's almost a 10-foot Goliath giant who hates God, blaspheming the God of heaven. He has a spear that weighs more than than David did himself. He had a man carrying his own uh, shield, and he's coming to him with with the entire army of the Philistines, his breath alone, it could wipe out half an army of Israel. And David says, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Why? He wasn't optimistic. 
He had hope. He had genuine confidence in the God that nothing was impossible with him. And so hope in God, hope holds a present expectation and trust in God. It's a steadfast, it's an unmovable confidence in God. Why is it that people drop out of church? Because they lose hope, Bible hope. They hope they can find some other place. That's not hoping in God. Hoping in God is being steadfast and unmovable. We live in a fickle society. They want to change it. They, they don't, we don't have enough commitment, steadfastness to a job. We don't have it to education. We don't have it to marriages. But the worst thing is we don't have it to God either. But understand, hope here to the end for the grace, this is the main verb. This is the main clause. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means when it says, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober are also commands, but they are subordinate participles. What does that mean? That means that the main command in this verse, in this passage, and the first imperative of this chapter is to hope in the grace of God. And this means you will not hope in the grace of God. You will not be able to successfully and victoriously endure the trials and the suffering and the burdens of life. You cannot until you understand what it means to gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. See, hoping for the grace of God is the main command. In order to hope in the grace of God, it requires that we know what it means to gird up the loins of our mind and be sober. So he's saying here in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Why? So that you can hope for the grace of God. Having having girded up the loins of your mind, be sober. All of those, or those two, however, support hope completely. Rest your hope fully in Jesus. Kenneth Wee says, set your hope perfectly, wholly, and unchangeably without doubt and despondency. So what he's saying in verse 13 is, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, because those are the means to the end, the main thing, and that is settle And satisfy your hope in Jesus. And he gives the Bible motivation of hoping. And and that is in the expectation of Jesus Christ to come. The grace that is to be brought to us. Now, musicians and athletes. They understand. They demonstrate an awareness of this concept. They have a goal in the future. So they discipline themselves here and now. Even somebody who wants to get out of debt. They want to live debt free in the future. So they discipline themselves here and now. Peter says, God wants you and I to live with full expectation and confidence in the grace that Jesus has provided us. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to do something about it here and now. Now, he clarifies that these two disciplines, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober, these are are not willpower statements. This is not grit your teeth and just hunker down and, and just gird up the loins of your mind and just be sober. No, he's not talking about something we do as much as he's talking about being tethered to the grace of Almighty God. He's not saying here's what you do in your own strength. He said here's what you are commanded to do in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can have the right expectation of Jesus to come through in your life. So he mentions the object of our hope. What is the object of our hope? Hope to the end for the, what's the word? Anybody have a Bible? Hope to the end for the grace. grace. You see it? Amen. Maybe we ought to pass out some five-hour energy drinks. Would that work? I mean, I would settle for five minutes. 
Peter tells us what the object of our hope ought to be. It's the grace of God. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. It's the grace that is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now he's talking about a this future when Jesus comes. But remember, if you've accepted Jesus to be your personal Savior, you've gone from religion to a relationship. You put your faith, trust, dependence upon Jesus. Jesus Christ has been revealed to you. The book of Revelation, what is that? It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. And he talks about in chapter 1, Christ has been revealed. He talks about chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, the churches that he's communicating with. And he says, if any man hear my voice and open the door, Jesus said, I will reveal myself some more to him. And chapter 4 is where he introduces the revelation, or excuse me, the rapture of Jesus. And then all the rest of the remainder of the book is future. In other words, the past is about Jesus revealing himself to us. The present is about Jesus revealing himself so that we would experience him. And future is us expecting just more of Jesus. And so how do we, how do we go through this matter of experiencing hope and grace? Well, hope, it's a confidence, it's an expectation, it's a faith and a trust and a dependence. Peter stepped out of the boat in Matthew 14. He had hope in Jesus. Wasn't wishful thinking. He would have never walked on water if he was just wishfully thinking. He had complete, absolute confidence in Jesus. So why did he sink? Because he no longer had complete, absolute confidence in Jesus. And so what he's, Peter is saying is hope and grace. Well, you said, uh, he says it'll be at the, at the coming of Jesus. No, it'll be filled up and completed. But when you got saved, he has revealed himself to us. Titus chapter number two says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And after we get saved, it goes on to teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grace. God's grace greater than man's sin. Where man's sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. What is God's grace? It's his enabling. It's his enabling to be what you're supposed to be. Does he tell us to be anything in these verses? Well, does he? He says be, give me one. Sober. Be, give me another one. Holy. But do you know before you can be holy, you have to be hopeful, trusting, confident, dependent, expectant of God's enabling grace because I can't be holy without his enabling. I can't live holy without his enabling. Someone says, oh, I can, I have. I say, I take God's side, I disagree with you. You're a liar, God's true. You are not what you claim to be. You can never be what God says you ought to be. You can never do what God says you ought to do without his enabling grace. Remember last Sunday night's message? Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. And that's what Peter says. Hope, confident expectation in the marvelous, matchless, wonderful grace of Jesus. Amen. Well, His grace, it's in our life, it's been revealed, it's been exposed to us now. Hope-filled, expectant, enabled Christians, you don't live carelessly. You don't live seeking self-indulgence and pleasure. So Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. But don't miss this again. God's command, God's delight is for his children to hope in God. Grace is available to you. So hope in God. I have no hope, preacher. As long as God's grace is available, yes, you do. Amen. See, it's always this order. It's always this order. Grace that's God's grace. God's grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. Salvation, enabling power. That's why it's such a, it's, it's tragic. It's so tragic to see people get saved, truly saved, and try to cut corners on the Christian life. 
When they try to, ah, I can do it my way. Why? He's given you grace. He's given you supernatural authority and power to be what you're supposed to be and do what you are supposed to do. Why would you want to settle with you when he's given you himself? You know why people try to adjust Christianity? Because they say it's too hard. Again, that's what Brother Donnie was telling us, and we would all have that testimony. Many of us grew up in an environment where all we heard was do this and do this and do this, and we were hearing it from preachers who were giving us their list, the list that they could do. And when preachers would swap out in a church, another preacher would come with another list. Or we go to another church and we find, I like their list better because they don't have as many things on their list. It's kind of like the Barney Fife rules. There's two rules here. Number one, obey all the rules. Number two, don't write on the walls. You know, it's that kind of a thing. And, and we look for that. We like that list. But, but do you know, the, the Bible is a lot stricter than even the most rigid of preachers. Because the Bible gets down to the innermost being. And God says, you, you, you can put a magnifying glass on every part of your life, but my word's going to get down into the nook and cranny of your soul. Well, how in the world are you going to fix that? Grace. It's going to take grace. Supernatural enabling. Divine enabling that gets down into it. See, a lot of us are trying to live the Christian life with the wrong fuel. I was telling Luigi, I was many years ago when I was in evangelism, we flew in, I flew into Atlanta, got into Atlanta, and took my wife to stay a few days with her family, with her mom and dad in Gainesville. And I had to go to West Virginia to preach at a, a youth conference, I think it was. And so um, her dad let me use his diesel truck. Well, I'm on my way, go into Virginia, and I got to stop. And I stopped at the gas station, got fuel, and got off down the road. And all of a sudden, it's just coming. I'm just playing through some things in my mind. Don't even know why it was, but just played through being at the pump. I just filled up with gasoline. And I began to wonder... I wonder if this truck would be an exception. I mean, we're cruising along just fine, winding mountain road, and all of a sudden I lose power. And all of a sudden it starts making funny noise. And all of a sudden I'm looking for the next exit. And I found the next exit and, and got off. Unfortunately, it was a big old exit and found a truck stop and and I had to get a hotel for the night. Unfortunately, I set off a day early, and so I had a, a day of protection there. And they took the truck and had to clean whatever they did. They cleaned it out, and, and I got going the next day. But I was trying to run 75 miles an hour down the interstate or up the mountain at that point with the wrong fuel. And so many of God's people are trying to be what they ought to be, do what they ought to do, in their own strength and power based upon what they know. I know right. I know truth. And that's why he was given to us in the first 12 verses. Here's what you need to know. But it's not going to do you any good until you have Bible expectation and confidence and trust and dependence. And not just in general, but in the very liberating grace of Almighty God. That's what Galatians was about. See, legalism is you doing what you want to do or you doing what you think you ought to do. You doing what you do in the strength and energy of the flesh. And it's bondage. And so here, Peter is telling us God's main command is to hope. Now, hope. It always comes in the order of grace first, then hope. He says, verse 13, wherefore or therefore, same idea, rest your hope fully and completely. Therefore, wherefore, hope fully. 
dependent upon the grace of God. Now let's sum up these verses. Verse number one. He says, since God has chosen you. Verse number three. Since God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Verse four. Since God is keeping an inheritance for you undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. Verse five, since God is protecting you through faith so that you won't lose that inheritance. Verse six and seven, since God is refining your faith by fire so that it will receive praise and glory and honor. Verse eight, since you are experiencing the wonderful love of of Jesus, though you don't see him uh, in, in person, you, you have the overwhelming joy in Christ, verse 10 through 12, since the prophets and the angels are on tiptoes to see all that God's grace will do in your life, verse 13, wherefore, therefore, rest your hope fully in this grace. See, Christianity is not some kind of a principle. It's not first a faith or a feeling, or a theology. It is first the sovereign God, God, taking initiative, displaying his great power and grace to us. Peter doesn't leave the command to hope dangling without help. He tells us now two ways to stir up our hope. How can we make sure we're focused on God's enabling grace? How can we make sure we're expecting God's enabling grace? He says, well, first of all, gird up the loins in your, of your mind, and the other is be sober. Again, these two are the subordinate participles telling us how to get through this Christian life successfully, hoping. They're not the main commands. They're secondary commands, but they're just as important because without girding up the loins of our mind, without being sober, we will not hope in the grace of God Almighty. So let's look at these quickly. What does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? As we've mentioned, it's turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. Doesn't the Bible say run the race? We're running a race, Hebrews chapter 12. How do we do that? Looking unto Jesus. What does that mean? It means turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. Pull up those garments, pull up whatever it is that is between your legs and around your feet and tuck them inside your belt. Pull that up so that you are uncumbered. You're not going to trip. You're not going to fall. What does that mean in real life? Well, we know that girding the mind is a means to hoping Fully in the grace of God, having girded up the loins of your mind, hope rests completely in God's grace. That's what our minds are running for. So girding the mind to run in full confidence and expectation of God's enabling grace. But what are they running in? What are they active in? How are they running? They run by girding up the mind. They, what is the mind to be doing so actively that it produces hope? How do we gird up the loins of our mind, in other words? Well, the answer is truth. With truth, it requires truth. See, hope happens when our minds are girded up with truth. Active in faith, but it's for truth. We're going to look at this in weeks to come, but he says... Verse 14, don't conform yourself to what you used to be conformed to before you were saved. The reason we were once led along by all kinds of lusts instead of being led by God's grace is because our minds were, he says, in ignorance. We didn't know Jesus. Then he gives another reason, and that is, he talks about this matter of standing, not losing ground. Don't you might be scattered. You might be going through suffering. You might be going through persecution. You might be going through hardship, but you don't have to lose ground with Jesus. So Peter's first secondary command is gird up the loins of your mind. It means engage the mind with truth in the idea that it will give you a hope, confidence, steadfastness, and faith in the grace and enabling power of God. So he says, run with truth, work with truth, truth, live with the truth of scripture. So gird up the loins of your mind. How? By truth, but also be sober, hope fully, fully rest, 
keep sober in spirit. See, sobriety, mental, spiritual sobriety, it's also a means to accessing the grace of Almighty God. What does that mean in real life? Well, it means if you really want to obey the command, hope fully in the grace of God, he says, don't let your mind drink in the things that will numb your heart and mind to the value of God's grace. See, the great problem with drunkenness is that it distorts reality by making the mind insensitive to what is true, what is real, and what is valuable. You know, often we've talked about when choosing a place to vacation, my wife, she would always choose, she loves the ocean. And she, her, so did her mom. And I've often been less inclined to the ocean aspect. And I've become more interested because that's what she enjoys. Early on in my ministry as a single young man, as a college 17, 18, 19-year-old And as a 20-year-old and 21 and 22 and 23 and 24, and when I got married at 25, I would often choose anything but the ocean. Beaches are what you often find by the ocean. And people tend to wear bathing suits while at the beach. And maybe you don't know this, but designers of women's bathing suits, it seems, are constantly finding creative ways to arouse the sexual desires of men. Now, just so you're you're fully aware, my concern has never been that I might be tempted by one of these women to ever commit adultery. That's never been my concern, because that's not my concern. My concern is way before that. My concern is how can I maximize hope in the grace of God in my heart? That's what Peter is saying in this text. I'm to be concerned with hoping fully in God's grace and enabling. But I know from about 26 years of experience in ministry and many more years of biblical warnings that enticing sexual input to this brain can be spiritually inebriating. That's my biggest concern. See, if I allow myself to drink it in through my eyes for long or to return to it, my passion for the truth and my intensity and my fullness of hope in the glory of God's grace, it diminishes. The main command of this passage is not be sober. The main command of this passage is not to gird up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind and being sober are to help me fulfill the main command of this passage, and that is to hope fully in God's grace. That's the issue for me. And here's a spinoff. If you make that your issue, men, hoping fully in the grace of God and letting nothing come into your mind for long that desensitizes you to the glory of God of spiritual things or diminishes your passion for God, if that is your battlefield, then you may never have to fight the immediate temptation of adultery or fornication ever. Did that go over your head? Let me say it again. If you men will take Peter's cause to be your cause, that is hoping fully, faith-filled expectation of God's enabling grace in my life and let nothing come into your mind that will desensitize you to the glory of spiritual things or in any way diminish your passion for God. If you will make that your battlefield, then you'll never have to worry about fighting the temptation to actual adultery or fornication. 
Why? Because you're believing what God says. You're putting the fight where it belongs. Don't let anything inebriate your, your thinking. Don't let anything rob you of being sober. That's why I said to the men this morning, it does make a difference where you sit. You ask Ron Comfort when he shows up here in a couple of weeks if it makes a difference where you sit in a congregation. Yeah, he'll tell you, and he has often said, I don't know of anything that has been of spiritual value that has ever taken place on a back pew of a Baptist church. Forgive those who are on the back pew. But he's saying that so often we sit where we are wanting to soak. We stare where we're wanting to steer. We go where we want to grow. But don't think sex is the only drug that intoxicates and numbs the mind to spiritual reality. Same can be true of money. Career, power, romance novels, soap operas, nothing clean about them, I don't know why they call it that, but TV advertisements, fishing, hunting, coin collections, computers, rehabbing, gardening. See, the point is this, what Peter is saying, know what numbs your mind to God and avoid it. Stay sober for the sake of having a full and passionate hope and confidence in the grace of God. So God's great concern in this passage is this. If you're a child of God, don't be a casual hoper. Don't be a casual hoper. Don't be satisfied with half hoping. Engage your mind with hope-producing truth of Scripture and embrace that Scripture that will set you free and guard your mind so that you can guide your hope to rest in Jesus Christ. And I want to say, church, let's do it together. Gird up your minds, be sober, rest your hope fully in the grace of Almighty God being brought to you the revelation of Jesus Christ and that you've been exposed to even now. Grace will always be greater than our sin. So hope in the grace of Almighty God. How can I do it? Gird up the loins of your mind. Deal with whatever is tripping you up. And then be sober. Quit being inebriated spiritually in your soul, intoxicated with things of this world. When you look unto Jesus, the songwriter wrote, things of this world will grow strangely dim. Let's stand together, please.